So uh, I forgot how we do this. I think we just jump into it. <laughs> right? <laughs> Neil talked about it during the last show, but <clears throat> maybe we we do just talk, kind of set the scene for, or set the stage for where we're coming from in this episode and not worry about the actual future yet, but just set the stage of like what has changed during our careers to really, I think that might just be kind of a fun storytelling time and then leave it at that for the, for this episode, right. To say like, okay. And at the end it's like, okay, where do we go from here? Tune in next time. Because, because then the next one is like, who knows what? I mean, we we might look at actually rearranging our our boards based on the where we get to in these ep in, in each episode to talk about what's next. Because yeah, we, we should be talking about the office of the future and the student of you know what what do students need to to operate in the future. I think that that's one of the cards in there and the future of design process and you know I think there's a lot of things that we could a lot of directions we could go, but. Let's set the stage. All right. Neil. So I thought we'd start this series off by talking a little bit about what defines architecture or what defines an architectural career in the 21st century. But to do so, I thought we should maybe take a look back at what defined an architectural career in the 20th century. But I think if we look back at, say, the last century of this profession and what happened, maybe that will give us some idea of direction. The changes that occurred over the last century, I don't think anybody could have predicted, or the movements that happened in architecture, especially beginning around 1920 or in the late teens, early 20s, really kind of changed the course of what really happened in the in the 20th century so are we a year or two away from a similar movement or direction in architecture and the profession that will completely change or is there another new movement that is we're right on the cusp of experiencing now in the 21st century that may set design trends or um, some sort of movements that will propel us or the profession uh, in directions that we probably can't even guess. So maybe to start off looking at that is maybe um, kind of looking at our own careers, because I think that when it comes to the production of documents, if you will, uh, the, the instruments of service that we employ has really changed quite dramatically, at least in our careers. Um, and that might be fun to kind of start off that way by looking at our own careers and what sort of change kind of set the table. And maybe we can even go into a little bit of the history of, of the last century too, as well. But uh, what's your guys' thoughts on that? I, I it, Some things pop into my head during this, and I do not want to derail this because this, uh, this is going to be a fun yeah. episode down memory lane. But uh couple things that came to mind were that what's really interesting I think about this whole idea is that the way we do it 
almost doesn't matter because it's the buildings that transcend time. And so, so the buildings seem to, at least they used to last longer than we do. Right. And, and, and so there is no like hard stop on centuries for buildings, right? Or, or at least we could, could hypothesize that a building could, you know, bridge the gap or, or last that long. I mean, there's, de- there's definitely, um, examples of, of said buildings that, and, but, but most of the buildings produced today don't last that long. Uh, and then the other thing that I think is interesting is that we've gone through so many shifts in the way that we make things. And like you even said, like produce documents as, as like a major career thing. Uh, and I almost wonder if, if we think back to the projects that matter, the ones that, that we, that we experience and are blown away by, did the process of production have anything to do with that? Or was it simply the strength of the wills of the people involved and the strength of the ideas and the outcomes? And, and because then I start to think about the value of an architect and, and where we should really be thinking about that. Is it really in the production of said drawings or is it in the value of the ideas? And I definitely have thoughts about that. I've been thinking about this lately. Um, so it's not just totally um, coming out of left field, but it, it is an interesting kind of, I, I just want to throw those things out there because maybe those types of thoughts could influence future episodes in this series. Well, also, and let me throw this on the fire as well, you know, cause Neil, you started talking about, and yes, I did totally lay off the opportunity for many jokes about age. <laughs> <laughs> about don't worry we'll have plenty like, of time for that let's talk about the last century well of course you can talk about the last century you worked in all of, uh, no just kidding no but no what i thought about it and you so you'd gone back to like say you know well, what about think about the architecture of the 1920s and in time about, about that you I mean not only was there a change in the way we were producing documents, but there was a way we were a change of the way we were producing buildings in the construction technology that was changing at the time. And then we, st- I, I think in a way, and, and again, don't want to derail the conversation. I think this is something that we could save for a later conversation, but I think we've reacted to the way that the building industry has changed, you know, the, the type of materials, the way that they build and, and, you know, the engineering behind some things. And so we've changed and then vice versa, you know, they've changed because of the way we're, you know, kind of like in many cases leading the way and, you know, some cases, you know, following behind the, the trend in um, technology shifts and stuff. So I think there's a, a lot of different layers to unpack on how building technologies, how building construction and how, you know, the delivery method has really affected the way that we actually practice as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think this is all really interesting stuff. So let's, let's start, let's just set the stage for, for the series with let's all talk about how much things have changed since we started in the profession. All right. So who wants to go first? Grandpa Pan. <laughs> how much do you want to edit here? <laughs> I seconded that. <laughs> Well, well it's back in my day. Yeah. Uh, but, okay. How far did you have to walk to the office both ways? Uphill in the snow. Yeah, uphill in the snow. <laughs> yes, exactly. 
Well, one of the first things that comes to mind as to some of the changes that have occurred, even in my career, is it, it, the most obvious one, it sits on the side of my desk, actually, and that's the code. Um, in looking at the, the building code, in the first version of the building code I purchased myself and when I was back in college uh, was the 1998 version of the UBC, which was the building code for California at the time. And I think it's uh, maybe an inch to an inch and a half thick. Yeah, it, I think I have like a 1984 code book around here somewhere right. that I had picked up at a used bookstore when I was in high school. Mm -hmm. when I was thinking about being an architect. Right. And so, yeah. I mean, the, the, the things that it covered were, you know, obviously much less. Now we've got this multiple volume set. Uh, I've got binders and, and just the, the main building code uh, is two binders, parts one and two. And then you've got the residential portion of the code, which is like, you know, additional stuff that's separate uh, you've got the green building code, at least here in California. We have that separate piece. Those are the main pieces that I use um, almost on a daily basis. And then you've got your plumbing code, mechanical code, those. And I don't dive into as often because most of what I need to refer to is in the main building code. But, I mean, that's one of the things that just um, that we've had to de to deal with. Uh, during during my career is just the explosion in the code book and all the rules and regulations, um, not to mention just the um, the process of getting a project approved well, uh, through the entitlement process all the way through to construct you know um, uh, to a, to a building permit has radically changed in the time frame that it takes. Uh, this past week, I was presenting to a city or planning commission and uh, kind of turning the tables. I've served on a planning commission for eight years, and now I'm uh, presenting in front of another one. And this project took a year, more than a year. I think the, it first uh, applied for entitlement uh, in March of 20 or 19. Uh, Jesus, my dates are all off here. Um, Memory's going. <laughs> yeah, memory's starting to go here already. Uh, it just just last year in in 2018, and so it was a year long plus process to even get this project uh, to get a planning commission approval. And I mean, we haven't even started construction drawings or anything like that to, to begin construction. So just the timeline and the process, and we talk about one of the hot topics right now is you know housing and the lack of it and the cost of it. Well, when you take over a year to get a project entitled, who's, you know, those costs end up getting paid for somehow. And mm -hmm. so I think that is really been a huge shift in the timeline that it takes uh, to get a project approved and to get it built and the codes and uh, all of the regulations that go into uh, generating a project nowadays or getting a project built and the cost to do so uh, has just ballooned and exploded uh, in, during my career. That's one of my first thoughts. Well, think about this, though. So, you know, it's interesting because you know, as you started talking about like the the codes and the coach changes and how that's kind of affected, you know, our careers. 
I mean, think about like the evolution of their and, and why, you know, a lot of these have changed because first we kind of had like everybody had their own. You you said that you were on the, the UBC. Right. I remember my first uh, job interview where I'm sitting in the principal's office of the firm that I was interviewing with. And he asked me a question. He's like, what building code do we fall under? <laughs> and I will admit to you, I had no clue, but I... I was observant enough to look right behind his head to see the code book sitting on his shelf. Nice. And I was like, I believe it's the SBC. And um, he's like, you're right. And I'm like, I wouldn't know that. Sure. It was just, <laughs> I was like, you know, but I mean, you know, so we had like SBC, UBC and Boca and all these things. And all of them had their strengths for what they were, but they were all regional right. codes and, it it almost made sense to one come under the the one uniform code of IBC now, but because we had the earthquakes in San Francisco, we had Hurricane Andrew, well, that was a big prompt for the major change in the Florida Building Code, taking the IBC that was just recently adopted, and then when two thousand and three Florida Building Code hit, that was a major change in mm -hmm. the Florida building code. I mean, it was enormous and it had a huge cost impact. I mean, at, at mm -hmm. the time we were looking at like a 30% increase, just making a code minimum building. And that was enormous. Mm -hmm. And we, you know, had a lot of people who were, you know, started to get pretty shaky on what they want, you know, if they wanted to do a project or not because of cost increase, because in our particular market in Florida, everything had to be tested and, if you, if like those manufacturers didn't um, pay for all of the testing, they couldn't be yeah. used in Florida. And it's still the case today. Oh, right? yeah, I yeah. mean, that's, it, it has repercussions oh, oh, that, that we still see. I mean, one story was, is that, so we were designing a, a building. It was actually one of my first major projects. We were designing the curtain wall system under EFCO. And, you know, so we had everything designed around it. Then the, then the 2003 Florida Building Code hit. Nobody but Conier had paid money for the, for the testing. And so... Yeah. Which is hundreds of thousands oh, of yeah. dollars usually, at least And nowadays. it went from a open bid where, you know, you had one basis of design and then you had all of these other ones that were approved equals to just one because that's all that you could build with. Oh. <laughs> huge advantage was, for, for them and so they were like well you know market's cornered nobody else as yeah. of right now there is no competition for us and we can jack up whatever price we want because if you want a curtain wall here's what you're gonna have to pay for it well and they did cost more oh, right yeah. because oh yeah 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 this reminds me of that text you sent earlier about not being able to build things like you used to right <laughs> yeah I mean, this is that you couldn't get away with stuff that you used to be able to get away with. And that's that's still happening. Right. But it's like you said, building cost went up 30 percent and you could no longer build them like you used to. You could no longer get away with certain things. And that and I mean, let's be honest, like a lot of architecture is trying to get away with things and interpreting the code to your advantage. I mean, really, you know, if you think about this, this really is the matrix, right? The the interpretation of the falling rain of green symbols on the screen that that's what the building code is and all these different codes that we had to work through and work with and and decipher them and try to get things to work together that were never thought about to work together and 
I mean, it is it is a, a giant puzzle that we're talking about putting together here and trying to decipher and get away with things um, that obviously still fall under the the umbrella of health, safety, and welfare. But but I mean, there are some constraints that that we get tricky with. Yeah, right? that's what working with the code is all about. So just since you mentioned the the text that I sent you guys, um, I'll kind of like tell it to everybody because some people will get a kick out of it and some people are like yeah that's exactly what so i had sent because i had overheard a conversation to young people in our office they were talking about it, and it's like so the exact quote was that may have been fine back in the day which is what was like kind of struck me it's like i mean they could get away with uh more back in 2002 i'm like <laughs> now it's not that long ago. <laughs> i was thinking to myself wait a minute 2002 that's like that's seventeen. Yesterday. That's seventeen years ago, and that's like you know, literally yesterday. <laughs> I mean, I, I guess when you're young, oh, I mean, the man. perspective is is that you know, oh, it's you know, that's oh, that's a long time ago. Um, but when you know, that's like middle middle of my life. I'm like, yeah, yeah, that was a long time ago. I mean, <laughs> or <laughs> I have I have a child that old. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Actually, my first child was. Um, Two years before that, and the next child came a year after that. <laughs> so it's just... Well, I'd like to sometimes think of that. I, I get it. it. It The time frame seems uh, not that long ago for us, but for, for some people, it's it seems like a long time ago. And well, what I'd like to... before them, right? Well, that's true. <laughs> yeah, it's before them. But I like to sometimes put that into my own perspective, which is... Okay, so say I was 20 years old and referring back to something that uh, was 20 years before that or something to that effect, like, oh, well, the late 60s, yeah, that was a long time ago. You know, I, what was my perception of take a period of time and then say 20 years or 30 years before that and then go, oh, yeah, that just seems like it was ancient back then. And I oh, probably would have said the very same thing. Oh, totally, so, like. Well, let's let's <laughs> let's just say it right now. Like when we were teenagers, or even maybe before that, like there were, you didn't have to wear seatbelts, right? So you could get away with a lot more back then. <laughs> yeah, I hit my yeah, head against the door once or twice. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, yeah, you're you're totally right because you know I'm thinking about this. Think about when you were 20, and maybe a 35 year old guy was like telling you a story or something, and you're like, "Yeah, that's nice, Grandpa." 35 that's right that's right and you're like wow and we're on the other side of 35 yeah by a few years so i think the other thing that had a major impact during my career so far is technology changes uh right i mean because for many years the the technology in the, in our architectural practice of this profession really hadn't, I say really hadn't changed. However, when I do a little bit of research, um, in, into this, there, there were a number of changes that took place during the 20th century. Uh, things like rapidograph drawing pens came into style or, you know, were started to be Use. used in the 1930s and that changed the way drawings were done. And, you know, they weren't just done by pencil anymore. And so the, the, and that may not seem like a big deal, but when you're trying to make a blueprint of a, a pencil drawing that has graphite spread all over it and, and 
in comparison to doing a nice inked drawing and making a print of that. I mean, it's a huge difference technologically when it comes to generating um, prints right, that, that were used to... You? Well, no, no, I'm, I'm really... just referring. I'm just referring to when this stuff changed, right? Okay, because and... you're like you're you're opining on it like it's like firsthand knowledge. <laughs> well, not quite, but but I mean, I did draw a lot with pencil, and you know, when you're running blueprints, oh, no. you, and I'm left-handed, I, I, I and think so we all, my yeah. left-handed hand, oh. you know, for left-handed people, it was a pain in the ass because basically my hand just it. it just it would just spread across the drawing and, you know, the whole side of my left hand would just be full of graphite. And mm -hmm. that affects the quality or the clearness of the vellum uh, that you would be running through the blueprint machine, right? And if you used ink, other than the fact that you'd, you'd smear it, which is a real pain in the ass, or you'd have to, and then you'd, although I thought, and I don't, I didn't do the research on this, but when... Um, you, you remember those electric erasers we used to have, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm and right and when they, I, I first discovered the or uh, no, let's see, what color was it? It was yellow. There's this yellow um, um, stick that you could uh, put into the the, the, uh, the, ink eraser. Uh, the eraser. Yeah, and it was for ink, and you could just like erase this stuff, right? And it was like it was like magic to me. Right, you just I mean, chew was, the paper away. It, it, well, now. yeah, you could just chew the paper away too, which which sometimes happens. Now, but... Since we're on this wayback machine, you're talking about drawing on vellum, you know. But there, so what was? Since we probably all did, maybe Evan might not have, but since we probably did, what was your preference, drawing on mylar or drawing on vellum? Oh, vellum, mylar was huh. uh, just felt like. Um, maybe the difference between well, there when, were two sides wait, wait, to the wait, wait, mylar. Wait, wait. There, okay. like there, there was the smooth side. There were the and smooth the side. side. When you drew well, on you the smooth side, you didn't draw on the rough side. Well, but, but you no, could. The, the, you could. You were supposed. No, you, but were supposed, you don't. No, you were supposed to draw on the rough side because the rough side was what held the ink. The smooth side was just basically what held the surface, the drawing surface on. The drawing surface uh, was if, the and actual if you rough drew side. on that. If you drew on that smooth side, it felt good, because right? Like it felt, it felt great. good with that rapidograph. Did you guys pen. not know that? <laughs> but the uh, pen would flow like like the ink would just flow like crazy. Sure, but right, it couldn't. Right. It wouldn't stay where you're you right, wanted it. But to. it wouldn't. Uh, like I get, yeah. Or if you're if you well, you guys had the special ink versions of all your triangles, right? Yep. Yeah, with the little uh, with the little in step in it, so that the yeah. ink wouldn't bleed underneath. Actually, and, yeah, well, people yeah. would, you know, you that's just stack up. Stuff. I was, exactly, it was like the ego old school, and you just you, you know, create like, your own. Oh, well, that's true. I never did that. Oh, oh we I'm always sure. we, done that. I did that all the time. So, in fact, I still so let, let's re let's let's reel this back in. So, I like what one thing that I thought it would be fun to do is actually talk about like what the office was like when you started versus what it. I mean, we all know what it's like now, but maybe paint a picture of what it was like. When so like when I was in college and I started my first office and it so so I started drafting when I was in junior high yeah. in a mechanical drafting class and we drew technical drawings with you know leader dimensions and and everything was like decimal point dimensions and it wasn't architectural at that point yet and we were drawing on drawing. eight and a half by eleven yeah mm -hmm. mechanical drawing we were drawing on eight and a half by eleven vellum and and, and like that was. Like you, I'd never seen vellum before that, right? And then 
when I got into high school, we were, I had architectural drafting class. I started in regular drafting and then I moved into architectural drawing. And it was funny that you brought up electric eraser because everybody had their own tools, <laughs> right? And that was and, mm-hmm. and that was the thing in the offices. Everybody had their own tools. And right. I still have my own tools. I still have my some of my old drafting tools and some in some cases they're newer drafting tools because you know, rolling rulers didn't exist or, or whatever. Right. Um, and, and they're super useful to have sometimes, right? So, but but back then, you know, we had lettering guides and small triangles for lettering and we had larger triangles for drawing and we had drafting arms and may lines and all these, these tools. Yeah, we had all the things, right, um, to, to do the drawings with. And, and you brought up electric erasers. And one of the things that I had done because I was such a nerd was I actually took one of an old Duracell flashlight and dismantled it flipped the mirror around stuck a radio shack motor into there and made my own wireless electric eraser wow yeah and i it and what was funny was like it was a project we called it cordless back in the day yeah why yeah wireless jesus (laughs) it didn't run off (laughs) (laughs) wi-fi he had an app on his phone yeah yeah, but it, I mean, it was I did an exploded axonometric drawing of this invention that I had made, right? And it and it was it was fun, but um, but it had it did not hold a candle to the real uh, corded electric well, erasers mean, that that spun at a thousand RPM. If you would have you know, if you, if you would have um, patented it, because I mean, I have so I never had a cordless. One. I actually I couldn't afford it. I record downstairs in my basement which i'm usually surrounded by my bookshelves of all of my architectural books but i also have hanging up on the wall i'm looking at all of my triangles all of my french curves my flexible curve yep i've got two electric erasers it's like so i mean i'm looking at my museum of all of the stuff that i used to use yeah, I had a I had a stand up mayline table, and you know, back when we were in school, we all had tall stools because when you're standing around, you ki- you could not really sit around and draw because no, nope. the table was so big, right? You had to stand yeah. up to reach, and you had the I don't know if you guys had what types of drafting arms you had on your table, but mine was the kind that that was more like a, a human arm, right? It 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 moved in and articulated in in all these different directions. Mm-hmm. It wasn't the the sliding type. Yeah, I never had um, one of those, but I wish I did because I like. I like. It was super cool. I mean, it just looked cool. Machine. Yeah, and and I mean, and then there was the standard, just the mainline ruler that you would just sat on cables yeah. on both sides, and, and and you would just use a parallel bar, yep. right? Um, it, it was a glorified T square at that point that that never got off <laughs> off kilter. But when I started, it was we it was all CAD, right? And and so that's one of the reasons I wanted to bring this up was because. One of the first major shifts in architecture during our lifetimes was going from hand drawing to computer drawing, right? Computer aided mm-hmm. drafting and design, yeah. right? CAD, C A D D. There's two D's in CAD, <laughs> at least there used to be. Right. And uh, and and so the when when I would also, yeah, I also started in microstation, like you. Our office was in the, the office I still work in today. It was was all microstation. We had the big tablets with the pucks on oh. them because there were several commands yes. built into the tablet that you mm-hmm. could choose the digitizer. from. The digitizer. And it was really interesting, right, because it had a it had a, a very particular sound to it when people would tap on these pucks. So this was 
you know, the mouse was not good enough was really the the thinking back then, right? Yeah. It could not yeah. be as precise. Mm-hmm. Uh, you didn't want to rely on all the tools on the screen of the computer. You wanted easy, air quotes, access to all the tools that the CAD uh, software program had to offer. Mm-hmm. And they were on the drawing surface. I, it's not really a drawing surface, right? But sometimes you would even like lay a drawing underneath yeah. a piece of plastic yeah. on mm-hmm. the drawing tablet and you would trace it using your puck, which substitute for a mouse. It was usually a smaller version. It was corded. It had four buttons on it. And it also had a little magnifying glass with a crosshair. The little like circle with the crosshairs on it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, right? And and so that you could actually trace a hand drawing into the computer with that thing. It was it was a digitizer. I mean, so it, because scanners were thousands of dollars back then, like now you've if got they, a scanner if they were, in your pocket. If they were right? even accessible. Right. right. And and they weren't. And and so so yeah, I mean you would a lot of times a, an architect would draw something by hand and then somebody would digitize it, right? It wasn't it wasn't even that you were necessarily going into CAD and drawing things to the some dimension. You were drawing it at the scale the architect drew it at, right? Uh, which was a sketch or something they had drawn on the drafting boards, and then it was being put into the the CAD machine, right? And there was only a few of those usually in the offices. And but in ours, you know, there were, everybody had a giant seventeen inch CRT and giant, you know, like seventeen inch monitor pounds. was enormous back then. And, and I mean, not only enormous from like a physical standpoint, <laughs> because it was right, but it was also just like the biggest TV you had ever seen. And it's sitting on everybody's desk mm-hmm. and it took significant uh, funds for for architectural firms oh, yeah. to shift into the technology side of things away from the drafting tables, uh, like like hundreds of thousands of dollars and that architectural offices had never had to do before. So that was like one of the first big shifts. But I also will say that I think it's, it is one of the worst things that ever happened to architecture was the commoditization of the tools because no longer did you need training to do drawing. You, you, and I, and I guess, you know, there's good and bad with that. I shouldn't say well, it's all bad, but it, it did make it so that anybody could draw. And and that's when that's when anybody could draw all of a sudden. Like it no longer had the artistry to it. You no longer had to kind of sweat how you drew right. and your technique <laughs> anymore. It just it just leveled the playing field. And leveling the playing field is not always a good thing for a profession <laughs> like this. Uh let me let me tell you a story. So, um, summer of ninety three or four, I was um, just after my second year in architecture school. Uh, a architecture firm in Montgomery, Alabama, was looking for you know summer intern, which ended up turning out to be like I worked for them part time as a draftsman, um, which had a very um, disastrous beginning. Uh, so my very first job there was to draw a big, massive floor plan, um, on a 24 by 36, uh, piece of mylar, um, Mm -hmm. a floor plan of a church that was being, a new church that was being constructed in Montgomery, Alabama. And 
so, you know, they gave me all of the sketches, they gave me everything and, and, you know, showed me what needed to, you know, happen. And I had had my, you know, introductory to drafting, uh, you know, architectural drafting in, um, you know, my first year and in second year. And so, you know, I'm like, all right, okay, I, I got this. And so I drew it and, um, he came up and he's like, well, this is good. He's like, but we're going to throw it away and you're going to start over. And I was like, looking at him like, oh, what the hell? He's like, <laughs> you use the same pen in the same pen weights for everything. Mm-hmm. And, it, mm-hmm. and that's a good and lesson. It's like, and I had, you know, because I, I didn't know, like, we knew how to draft, but we didn't really fully understand, like, the nuances of the different line graphics. weights and, and all yeah, of those other things. Graphics. It's like, this line weight right. means this versus this versus this, you know, and, you know, and, and the hell if I knew anything no, about then, you, you drew with that you drew with a, a pencil or a mechanical pencil even right. if you were if you were really a nerd right that was a weight exactly. and you didn't know why people would choose a different weight because the weight you chose was the right weight and so right some people like the thicker lead and some people like the yeah. thinner lead and it was like well why is there we never actually thought why are there different lead thicknesses right at that age yeah well, and, and the reason was is because you had you had several tools that allowed you to do weight, but weight wasn't a thing when you didn't know <laughs> exactly. about it. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Before weight or, or thickness of the, it, it's the softness of the lead. Yeah. Right. You yeah. had two it's H the softness and, and just F and and it was your H, it was your technique, right? You it was would have like to you change would, pencils. You would well. You would just move your your parallel bar a little bit right. and make that line thicker. What, you, you, would, would you would draw it again and again. You would build yeah, it up. You would drop the pencil down, yeah. and so it would draw a thicker line. Or you would like right, move right. it up. Or you would. You, I mean, think about this. If you remember the the little sandpaper uh, board that you had, where you could like sharpen mm-hmm. your pencil, you know, so oh, you can yeah, get that really chisel fine, it down. Yeah, you get that really yeah. fine point and everything else, and. You know, there was or just like all point. of these like yeah. weird artistic like ways to actually like draft something. Yeah. Um, and I think that's really interesting because now it's like, I think I'm sure that people don't even think about how we've gotten to where we are with different like <laughs> the, the torture of going through AutoCAD and not seeing the weight on the screen right. and learning how to read color right. <laughs> as weight, as weight right? translated right. in your brain. And now it's. Now it is more what you see, what you get right on the screen inside of Revit. Or, well, the or good thing is, is that, you know, right? you can, um, you know, you can toggle back and forth between, you know, turning your line weights on and turning your line weights off. And so, you know, you draft and, you know, with the line weights off. So it's, you know, just a nice thin line so you can see everything. And then you, you know, click the little button and line weights come on and you're like, oh, okay. That's what they... Yeah, but but you do that so you can build a super precise model, which you gave no craps about back <laughs> exactly. then, right? You would write the dimension that it was supposed right. to be, That's right. right? whether it was that or not on the paper. Oh, my God. I mean... NTS, <laughs> baby. Yeah, right. exactly. <laughs> so That's not to scale so, for those of you that don't know. So, so let me ask you this. So this was something that we used to discuss a lot about the transition from, you know, drawing on a drafting board and going to the computer where it's on a 17 inch screen or now, you know, um, you know, 32 inch screen or a 27 inch or 21 or whatever it is that you have in front of you. Now, the thing that we were, you know, the, the kind of the transitional, um, architect or even the guys before, you know, us who were, 
the the beauty of having your drawings out on the board and you could see the entire drawing and everything is when people would come by to take a look at it they could see yeah. everything and they could like comment on yeah. it like oh you know you're, you're missing this or that so you see the whole thing and it was you know my my professors used to always say you know you've got your entire drawing right in front of you so you know get up take a step back yep Stand Look back. Yep. Right. You know, move in. Yep. You know, kind of. That's like, impossible. And, and you nowadays. can't even do that. And, and now, literally, you're you're only looking at bits and pieces of. You're zoomed in all the right. time. Right. So you're you're looking at those bits and pieces, and you never really see holistically the entire thing. Um, and so then, when you really start to like audit and take a look at the model, you're like, oh, mm, that doesn't work. It's because you were hyper focused in on this, but you didn't realize that you know you weren't even chamfering your corners or you, you know, like your corners didn't, you know, close or, or something like that. Or it's just like, or you, you look at something and you're just like, um, you know, you know that that's not really how it works. And, and so, you know, it's, it was just always interesting to have that conversation about being the, you know, that micro view, macro view kind of, you know, look at the drawing mm -hmm. and stuff. And now if we really want to see it, what do we do? We print it out. And then, which here, here's just, or you project it on a wall. I don't know what, or you, or you what or, do people do? or you project it on a wall or something. But so most of the time we, we all print them out. Well, let's be honest with yep. you. The, well, yeah, but you just print it on 11 by 17 or, or if you do print <laughs> it fast yeah, or, or if you print it out full scale, you print it out, you mark it up, you make your changes and then you print it out again to take a look at it, to make sure you're, you know, it's good. And then you print it out again and then you print it out again. The, the, the the thing that I find so amusing about the, I, I guess the the paperless office is we use more paper in a paperless mm -hmm. office than we would have when we were actually drawing on paper because paper was so expensive, you had to get it right the first yeah. time, right? Or you know you pretty much like me more or less almost broke down like oh crap I just cost them. You know, all this time and all this effort and all this money for me drawing this, you know, floor plan wrong that now I have to do it again and damn sure got it right the second time. But so now I waste, you know, now I like created two pieces of paper instead of 200 pieces of paper. Yeah. Um, and if you think about it, it also, you know, in a way, I find this so amusing because I, I looked at some of the old drawing sets that I put together by hand. Now it wasn't a lot because I was getting into the firm that I worked for in Montgomery, Alabama, which was just a, uh, it was about a year and a half that I worked there. And when I started working there, we were all drafting, but there was their draftsmen, um, that had, th that was basically working on the, the AutoCAD. Um, and so they were trying it out with the big digitizers and all that other stuff. And of course, you know, the firm didn't, even though it was the, one of the oldest firms in, in Alabama, it didn't have the money to go out and like, let's just have everybody on a computer and let's do yeah. all the training and let's do all of this. No, it, I mean, they had a few people doing it. Other than that, everybody else just was drafting by hand. And so the sets that we drafted by hand we're a lot smaller because we were very succinct with it. Now, if you think yeah. about it, I, I'm doing like hundreds of pages of sets. We're making these massive, I, you know, jokingly call them Ikea catalogs of, 
of documents that we have to cut every single solitary bit because we can't leave anything to chance. We got to make sure they know every, you know, nook and cranny of it. Where is we, you know, we almost, and then they don't use it. And then we don't use it because then you get the RFIs that were just like, well, I don't really understand, you know, this detail. We don't build it like that. Yeah, exactly. So it's just, it's, it's kind of funny that, you know, in a way, and this is the, the, the old man rant, I suppose, but you know, in a way it's, it's funny that as we transitioned from hand drafting to computer aided drafting, we lost quite a bit of both. I mean, now you can't even, here's just a complaint that I have. You can't even get away with using, well, that's, you know, that's means and methods. Cause you know, when you drew it on, you know, by hand, you weren't going to draw every detail. So you literally said means and methods and they're like, all right, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll you know, interpret it. We'll give you what yeah. we think you want, or we will give you what it looks like, but we'll build it our way. And we didn't dictate well, how to build it. <laughs> The promise was always that technology was going to make it so that you had to do less, right? Mm-hmm. And and it's it's totally been the opposite, oh, and it yeah. continues to be the opposite. Yeah. BIM takes longer yes. than it even did with CAD. And CAD, because you draw more, you're trying to, like you said, figure out every little thing that is potentially not even going to be used on the project. And 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 you're right. Like when I was in high school, and I and I won the student housing design competition, and I had to draw up a set of drawings. For the house that was going to be built, it was like five sheets. Yeah, yeah. And then, and then I handed that over to the other ROP program where they were that they were going to build the house, and they took it and ran with it. And it wasn't like there was there was no fighting about that, right? There was no you didn't draw enough. It was like we'll take it from here because that's what we do. I think that's really an, an interesting point because, and that is probably one of the bigger downfalls of BIM is like. You can put more and more and more and more into these things, but that only works if people are going to get things out of yeah. it. Yeah. Well, think, okay. So let me give you just a, a basic example. Back in the day when we drew a electrical plan, you know, we drew the location for all of the different outlets, right? And yeah. so we drew our little symbol for the outlet of where we wanted to put it. Now, if we were very precise about where we wanted it on that wall, we would dimension it and say, okay, mm-hmm. you know, 18 inches off of this corner would be that outlet. Mm-hmm. But then at the, at the very most, we would maybe do a elevation, one like drawing maybe of all of the elevations of all of the different devices. And that would be it. We would assume that, okay, you want this outlet 18 inches off of the ground or wherever we decided to specify it. And they would put every outlet in the entire um, building 18 inches off the ground or otherwise, you know, unless otherwise noted. (laughs) However, so we modeled in um, a couple of areas where we modeled in the, or in fact, actually, I don't even think we modeled it in. I think our, you know, electrical engineer modeled it in, but they just modeled it in based off of the plan and they didn't really actually have any elevation to it. So when the contractor got the the plan, even though our drawings had a, an elevation of all of the device mounting heights of everything, of the outlets, of the switches, of the thermostats, everything, they were looking at the model. They weren't looking at our drawings. They were looking at the model and said, you have all of your stuff, you know, basically one inch off of the ground. Is that really where you want them? And you look at him and it's like, Jesus, really? 
Look, <laughs> and, you know, I mean, we could get into like where we've overthought a lot in BIM, but we aren't playing to our audience of what yeah. the actual intent of a lot of this stuff are. And so now, you know, these are becoming re less construction documents and more intent documents. What was, what did you intend to do here? <laughs> yeah. And that, I, that also goes back to my idea of the value. Where, where, where does our value actually lie? And, and is it really in the production of the drawings for the drawing sake and for the, for the, you know, who the agency that you have to get approval yeah, through. Yeah. I mean, and because is it really for the, the final product, yeah. the building? Yeah. Probably <laughs> not. Like you're not going to, are you really going to outdraft a contractor nowadays? Don't we design by RFI now? <laughs> or ever? Yeah. Uh, well, let's, Neil, let's get was... back to like, to what else has changed. I mean, like, so, so when I was in college, that was really when the first time I had ever laid eyes on something in 3D. Yeah. And that was probably my third year. Whoa. And it was Form Z at that yep. point. Or, yep. you know, some yep. people were using AutoCAD 3D, which is, you know, still a thing. I can't believe it. Which, but, which um, is funny, though, because that must have been later. Because so, like, I think the first, and, and I don't know about you, Neil, but um, so you start, when did, so when did you start school, Evan? 92. 92. Okay, yeah. so I actually started school around the same. When did you graduate? Ninety-seven. Okay, so then you then you started the same time I did, and we didn't even have AutoCAD. Everything was Formsy, mm -hmm. um, and so that was the first you know time. In fact, actually, I hadn't done used an actual drafting program, a two D drafting program, until uh, MicroStation. That was the first. That we was the had first one that we used. did have and like, it, man, I can't remember the version, but we we actually had a pen plotter oh, in yeah, yeah, yeah. our architectural building, and you had to buy the pens yourself, right? Everybody had their own pen, and it would like last a couple of drawings <laughs> before you had to buy another one. Yeah, yeah, but but you had to queue up in line and try to get your your drawing plotted for that class final, right? And it was like there was one plotter. There, you couldn't go anywhere else and get a print. Like I did have my own laser printer at home, which was like unheard of <laughs> because when I bought my first Mac through the school, I I also bought a 300 DPI laser, you know, Apple laser writer, and and it was slow as hell. <laughs> yeah, it would take like half an hour to get your essay out of that thing, right? But um, so I could like. It, that was the one of the beauties of Form Z, right? Was that you could actually print a big drawing over several sheets of eight and a half by eleven pieces of paper and tape them all together, <laughs> right? And then hand draw on vellum over the top of that <laughs> yeah. to make it look like one big drawing, yeah. right? So, yeah, the funny funny tricks that. But yeah, it was it was Form Z and and it was like version two. And back then, you could purchase it through a student program. And you can make a payment once a year for the next three years for, of like $250 or whatever. And at the end, when you graduated, you had your own legal copy of pro the professional version of Form Z, which I thought was super cool. And I totally did that because it was a tool that I continued to use for many years after that. Um, I just thought that was that was fantastic. Whereas like AutoCAD, right? Photoshop, all these 
there, there was no way that you were going to purchase that because it was a single purchase license. You had to pay it all at once. And everybody pirated it anyway, right? Because that was that was actually part of it. I think I think they fought it in the beginning and then it became part of their business model, right? Get everybody hooked on these. And then when they do become professionals, that they won't know any other tools and they'll have to use ours. I, I just thought that was kind of a, a fun a fun thing to think about is how there was no three D before college and now everything's three D all the time, right? And so it really we all did get trained in a 2d world and we got trained in you you imagine and you you create the design in your head in 3d and then you slice it up into these drawings that you would produce so they could build the real 3d thing now we build the 3d thing and we slice it up into 2d things so that they can build the 3d thing right it's uh it's an interesting process that we've gone through how many of you when you're creating like graphics um still sort of even though you're probably using you know the digital form of it kind of mentally harken yourself back to like the graphics you created when you were doing it by hand with like the you know the panatone the zip tone um stuff zip yeah yeah. Yeah. yeah totally i was thinking about that a few minutes ago <laughs> i was thinking about how we used to cut out yeah we used to, we had our exactos and we would cut out the 50% shading mm-hmm. thing and we would very precisely and then you would put it on your drawings and rub it onto your drawings yeah. to do anything with with any kind of shading or poche. Yeah. Even the lettering, Even right? The we lettering. would do the same the thing tra- with lettering. The transfer letters. Yeah. You know, like the hatching, the the gradients, the color, yep. you know, I mean it was just I was such an art to that. <laughs> Look up Zipatone kids. I mean that that was that was a cool thing. There's got to be some, some good YouTube videos of that in action. You know, it's got. I mean, I you, one hopes that like you could probably. I mean, I doubt that they still make it, but it was such. It was such fun. I mean, now it was because it was super hands on. Oh right? yeah, it was. Yeah. It was, and there was a lot of art to it, and that's really when you learned. And I think, yeah, you you asked if do you think back to it? I think. So, so I think there's good and bad with that too, right? I think like nowadays, does it do graphics really matter if if we are headed toward model based delivery? Well, I it's good. They matter to some people. So they matter to some people. I think earlier in the process, I, I don't think that a contractor necessarily would care about that. I don't think that engineers really care about any of that kind of stuff. But I think when you're trying to sell the look and the feel of the, the project to the client and, you know, and so you're, you are really trying to make the, the jazzy pictures where, you know, you get is Well, yeah, I, I would say now graphics matter in 3d way yes. more than they matter in 2d. But, yeah. and I know I just shoved the knife into the side of all the old architects listening because, because the answer is of course graphics matter yes. because that's the legibility of a drawing. But I think we're going away from drawings and that's, and, and I'm not trying to stay stuck on the way that we've always done things by thinking this way. I'm trying to say what is going to matter in the future. Um, because graphics really mattered when we in the the profession of architecture that we've come along in mm-hmm. they really matter they, oh, i mean yeah. an office will hang its hat on the graphics of their drawing set because that is and you'll still hear it today a contractor will see something that is 
well represented graphically and they'll be like, this is an amazing set of documents. They will comment on it, on how beautiful they are and how easy they are to read and understand. And that's really where all that comes from is creating a graphic language that becomes easy for the intended audience to read it. Um, But I think, I think that's going away and, and I don't know that that's good or bad. I'm just, it just is because we see it nowadays with students where you're just modeling, you're not drawing, right? And, and when you model things, the computer is doing the cuts for you and it is applying the thicker line thickness to the cuts, hopefully, not always. <laughs> and, and people don't even know why it's doing that, right? right? Coming out of school nowadays. At least I don't think they well, do. Well, I'll say this, that, you know, there has got to be a time soon, sooner rather than later that we need to pick a side, whether it's, you know, a full model-based delivery process or something that's graphical because the current project under construction right now is a good example of kind of a hybrid delivery process where we sat on the job site on Thursday sketching on a wall next to a condition that they didn't follow the drawings. And if they would have looked at the model, the model showed um, us basically coming through the middle third of a beam with some fire protection so that we can keep everything tight. Well, they looked at the drawings and they saw the path of this particular uh, sprinkler main and they went under the beam. Well, that basically put the fire protection underneath, you know, below our ceiling Mm -hmm. And below a soffit, you know, because it was this featured stair and it was coming into it and all this other stuff. And and so we basically had to sit there and, which was awesome, default back to pulling out a carpenter pencil on a, a big sheet of plywood that was sitting next to the condition that we were looking at. And we sat there and we sketched out what the solution would be to basically kind of fix what the misread of the contract documents was so i mean there's a little interest you know there's a little bit of like i I don't know if we're ever going to need to get fully away from or or at least 2d drawing if it's a way to sit there and communicate our ideas on site totally totally agree and and the speed at which you can do so oh yeah yeah yeah. i mean it was funny as i think that's something that's also lost on the newer generations is the speed at which drawing by hand really does communicate ideas i mean you could do five in the time it could take to do one on the computer yeah that and you can do it anywhere you can do it on marker board you can do it on a on a receipt you can do it on a napkin you can do it it in sketchbook it doesn't matter did it on a piece of installed sheetrock that was um on the wall and we had we had moved some windows up because we changed the thickness of the door frames from a one inch to a two inch door frame. And because we had a transom over it, it essentially it elevated the the door was two inches higher than the adjacent like clear story windows because you know everything was changed to a two inch frame, but you know we only changed the elevation of the doors, not we didn't change the elevation of the windows. And so when we changed the elevation of the windows, there were some acoustic uh, wall panels that were already fabricated. They were ultimately ended up being four inches too short uh, between the frames and, you know, the little gap in the wall and the frame moving and all this other stuff. So we were sitting there and I was like, well, what do we need to do? And so I sketched on the wall in, you know, at one-to-one, which was, I, 
I even impressed myself because I literally drew to <laughs> the exact like dimension. Because um, he like pulled out his tape measure, he's like, "Holy crap! That really you really did draw it four inches by you know one inch by whatever." <laughs> pretty good, pretty good. You know, so I I drew all this stuff out, and we took a photograph of what I drew on the wall, and they submitted it back. That that sketch that I did on the wall, they submitted it back as just a conforming RFI that that was the direction we were to go. And we did that four times throughout. I did a modified uh, two-hour rated wall because uh, just the built conditions were a little bit off from what was drawn. And so we had to modify the the two-hour wall and so like sketch it up. And then we sent it out to basically get an engineering judgment to make sure that what I had sketched up would work. And we got that. And, you know, but all of this stuff was like hand sketched right there on site. Well, it's it's funny that you say this story because I just want to throw a mental footnote out here for maybe a future thing. Because again, I don't want to maybe go here right now, but but there is a big difference in the way our models and our drawings are being used now, where they are being followed too closely. Uh, versus, yeah. and the reason I say that is because, like we said, back when we drew a, a, a small set by hand. You weren't drawing all this little stuff, and they would not have built the wall the way that they built it because they would have thought about it, right? right? They would have right. thought about where the fire rating needs to go instead of building it the way that they thought the the model was showing, or the, the drawings, yeah. let's yeah. say the drawings, from the model. They didn't look at the model, you said. And so I think, again, like just to kind of go back, and this is just informing my thesis, which is that I don't think an architectural model should be the one they build from. I think it should it should just provide intent and direction. And then I think again that somebody else should be doing that drafting or that modeling, whatever you want to call it, for the thing that actually gets built because I don't think the value is there for architects. I think we, I don't think we're getting paid to think through all that stuff at that level and even if we do it shows that they don't follow it. Right? So so again, like we we kind of need to assess where the profession is at, yeah, but it, and make a decision about where we want it to go, yeah. Let, because I think a lot of times we're just reacting to where they want it to go and what they're asking for, and we're putting this detail in, kind of assuming that they're asking for it. When when the case is, they're they're usually not. Yeah, let's let's definitely and, save that for let's save that for later because that <laughs> so, is a whole can of worms that I would love to get into. Um, so, so is there any other like huge shifts in the, or not even huge, but just big shifts in the profession that you guys have seen? Like when I started at, at HMC, I spent a lot of my time in, in the blueprint room, <laughs> actually feeding the paper oh God. Yes. and, and breathing the ammonia oh, yeah. from that machine making copies of drawings and it wasn't blueprints, right? I it was, s- it was blue lines. Yeah, I, I, I swear. <laughs> there was a difference. I swear that. I spent a good full summer, like yep, eight hours a day, you know, in ammonia, in ammonia infused. clad. Yep, um, oh. smelled horrible on my way home. You know, just yep, uh, rolled the windows down so hopefully it would like air me out because <laughs> it was just <laughs> it was bad. And God, did I have such a headache? Um, yep, that's terrible. For you know, for weeks, I think I had like you know. A, I swore I was like growing a tumor from, you know, just like how <laughs> yeah, bad of totally. a headache I would have like all the time. And then it got to the point where I was doing it so much that the headache stopped and I, that worried me as well. <laughs> 
but so because because so that same firm in Montgomery, Alabama, when we were switching from hand rafting to computer and we were starting to move away from all of the mechanical stuff, we had all of these drawings that they wanted to archive because some of the drawings were falling apart. I mean, you know, this is a, it was a pretty old um, firm and, you know, back in the nineties, they were like around 70 years old. I mean, they still exist today, but I mean, so they had been around for quite a while. And so they had all of these drawings and some of them were in, in kind of rough shape. And so they wanted to, this was again before scanning. So, you know, I, their answer to pre preserving these drawings was basically making archived blue line sets. And so that's what I was doing is archiving all of the sets in blue line. Yeah. I, I, I wish I still had them, but I did make a couple of, of prints of some of the work that they had done over the years that were just so beautifully drawn. Um, and that, that was another thing, the artistry of a handline drawing versus, you know, like the almost like mechanical coldness of a model or, you know, something that was uh, drafted in AutoCAD is just, there was just something so beautiful about a hand drafted set of documents. Yeah. Um, I mean, frameable artwork yeah. in my totally. opinion. We actually had a, like during our 75th anniversary for our firm, they had hung a bunch of drawings on the walls as like an installation from the original owners of the, of HMC and so I think it was Mr. Harnish's of the H of HMC's drawings and uh, just amazing, gorgeous. You know, they were they were technical elevations of of classical architectural mm -hmm. buildings. I don't know if he did these drawings when he was in school or if he did them after the after that, but then then colored with colored pencil and just beautiful yeah. framed drawings. Yeah. Like you just said, they were framed. They were. I mean, they were of that caliber they were works of arts that i would love to line my house with some of these just like yeah yeah absolute gorgeous like i mean because there's a character to them that we just don't have anymore i mean and yeah so we'll throw on you know hey let's turn on the shadows so that you know you get a little bit more like animation to the your set of drawings but you don't Depth, do a yeah. technical drawing with shadows and all this other stuff but just again, harkening back to our earlier part of the conversation when we were talking about the line weights and the way that you would hold a pencil and, you know, this would be a point and this would be kind of like on the side of the lead and, and all of this other stuff. And, you know, Neil, you said like chiseling, it, you know, pencil. chiseling it yeah. out and stuff and getting that really thick, fat character line um, was just so much. All right. Now we're starting to I'm, I'm, I'm crying right now. So. <laughs> Yeah, but it, it it does come down to what the drawing communicates, right? Yeah. And so you you do turn shadows on now to communicate depth, and you do profile yeah. something a little bit more to make it pop. Um, and I think I think that comes from a an understanding that is built through the history of of what we've been through. Yeah, yeah. So so then the shift went from CAD to BIM. I mean, that's definitely something that that has happened um, over the course of our professions. Yeah, and and I think real quick, I think I'd like to save this for a later conversation. But with the shift of you know from the shift from pencil to CAD to BIM, there's a progression in the way we construct as well. Because there's a direct translation to the way builders are building now that affords us to be able to 
the things that we considered avant-garde and you know very risky back in the day are very commonplace now because now we can you know almost fabricate that stuff to like paper thin you know um, cantilevers and and stuff like that whereas like you know you can actually do like a an analysis and, right yeah exactly totally because like when frank lloyd wright was doing his stuff and he was doing these like paper thin things he was testing it out nobody had ever done it before so well yeah, yeah. you're relying on like some some structural engineering yes. matrix of numbers <laughs> yes. right where it was like these are the span tables and these are the depth tables and these are and they would go by that and and it's like man i i hope this is right and, <laughs> and in many cases it it's sa- they're sagging right yeah yeah over time they probably didn't sag for a while but now they are mm-hmm and and now you can do the modeling and analysis and you can do some crazy stuff with this to to make sure that it actually is going to work um and and not actually have to be guessing and hoping right right <laughs> hope is not a plan right it's a <laughs> so i we're running short on time i know neil you got to run so do you guys have anything else that you want to add to the history I, I i was just thinking about the shift to bim as as a worthy worthy of of talking about just because again it there's good and bad right yeah. we we went yeah. from like you said we went from from drawing with pencil and pen to drawing on computer which is the same thing as drawing with pencil and pen yeah. just on the computer just a different medium. and now i think i think that bim was is even an evolution of that which is not a good thing which is 3d drafting now for a lot of people i mean that's that's really all it is, and they're not taking it to the full potential that it could be. Right. Um, and, and and so, yeah, you could call any program that that does something in 3D BIM, but it's not real BIM right. unless you actually are infusing the data, well, you know, in I mean, a consistent manner into your models that is becomes useful later. And I think, you know, that's that's probably one of the biggest struggles of firms is is investing in the future potential of the data that goes into BIM, um, seeing the value now that, to be able to do that and use it later. And so I think that that's where maybe the one of the next big shifts is, is people realizing like, oh crap, we've been selling ourselves short for a long time by just producing 3D models of buildings that then get represented in 2D so that they can get built. When in fact, we've had the opportunity to inject the data into the models for a very long time and we just don't so we really are doing 3d drafting now which is just an evolution of 2d drafting yes which is in cad which is just an evolution of 2d drafting on on paper and so i think that this is something that we're going to witness as a as a larger shift is is the use of data and i mean there's lots of firms who are doing that so i don't want to sell anybody short but there are the majority are not um, and I think that that's something that a lot of firms are struggling with. Mm-hmm. I agree. Other than that, like our physical spaces really haven't changed much. Would you guys say? No, not really. I mean, I mean the phys- the the office itself. I mean, maybe the cubes it, <laughs> have changed. Yeah. Uh, I mean, but, but in a lot of cases, again, those I, haven't. I think you know, and if you look at like the architectural spaces you know, like the actual architectural offices, let's just go from, 
like the early 1900s to now, we've always actually almost believed in and were pioneers of the open office concept because it was about the communication between people about that were developing details and drawings and drafting and, and all that other stuff. And so we were always, you know, kind of the open office. I mean, you, you look at the, you know, the picture that everybody, you know, always puts out there of the meme that says, you know, um, the office before, uh, CAD and, you know, you've got all these like, you know, dudes like laying across tables or, um, with paper stretched on out the on the floor and all this other yep. stuff. So I mean, we've always been an, you know, an open office and, and I, you know, other than, you know, the few like partners and all this other stuff that have like the closed office, we've always been in a bullpen type situation. Much to the chagrin of the introverts in the, of the world. But exactly. But that's what headphones are for. I, I will <laughs> zero in on something you just said. You just said a bunch of dudes. And I think that that is absolutely well, that, exactly. a big thing that's changed. Right. So so and I've heard stories about the offices of before us for sure. But but um a bunch of dudes, a bunch of white dudes, yeah. right? Yeah. That was it. I mean, and so there has been, and many will say not a big enough shift here, but I mean, this is definitely something that we've seen change is just the, the types of people, <laughs> you know, well, what the, I don't know what the right way to say it is, but like there are way more women, there are way well, more minorities, but there are not, it's does not represent uh society it's, at large. It's not there yet. And it's getting there. And I, my contention has always been that equity is going, is going to be the only thing that in my personal view saves architecture because architecture has been a dwindling profession for a while because unaccessible people think that we're arrogant and all this other stuff. People don't see themselves in, you know, the people who are trying to create their vision and stuff like that. And so there's whole sector of people who are building things that have turned to builders or turned to, you know, developers to deal with architects and all that other stuff because people don't feel like they're accessible. And, and I, and I think that having, you know, more women and more minorities or to, you know, to balance out the, you know, this, this profession is the only thing that's really going to save this profession. That's my two cents. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that that has been a big shift. I mean, our office definitely is, it's, it's been way better in okay. the last yeah. 10 years, let's just say, um, you know, I, I know that there's a huge battle I, still being, being waged out there because, because of the, the need for this, but, and, and, you know, equity by design is a huge champion of this yeah. and, and as our, as our many other, you know, the architecture lobby and, young architects forum and all you know it's definitely becoming more and more of a, a thing that people even just talk about out loud and understand the the need in our profession but it's it has been a big shift away from a bunch of white guys smoking in the office <laughs> yeah right i mean that that smoking and drinking and you know that's not an acceptable workplace anymore just like just an office full wait, of wait, drinking snuff? old white acceptable? dudes isn't an acceptable workplace anymore and and so i think that these are all changes for the for the better so um well i love it's all I, worth i love bringing my daughter about. i love bringing my daughter into our office because um you know she can see professional women in the workplace mm -hmm. at, at not just you know like you know one here one there i mean we have a hundred and some odd people in our Baltimore office. And I, I don't know the 
ratio, but I feel like it is very much at least 50% women in our office. And I absolutely Mm -hmm. love that. And I love the opportunity to bring her in, even if she's not considering architecture, you know, just being able to see professional women in the workplace as Mm -hmm. an example of what she can do in the future. So I, I absolutely love that, you know, um, like our office can be a champion of, of showing her that there's more, um, for her to do in this world. Cool. You guys got anything else that you want to bring up before Neil runs? Where are you running to Neil? Nowhere today. You're not running? Tomorrow's the big day. 23 Mm -hmm. miles. Sweet. Why are you running 23 miles? What are you trying to do? It makes catch? it easier to run twenty six point two if you train for it. <laughs> is there like a is there like an ice cream truck you're trying to chase or something? <laughs> no, just can I do it? Can you do something? Can you achieve something? Well you've done it once, right? Six times. Okay. Just once. <laughs> why do you keep why do you gotta keep doing it? Can I can I do it again? Oh, man. All right. It's awesome. I love it. It's a challenge, right? Why do you get up in the morning? Do it again. (laughs) To chase the ice cream truck. I was going to say, I thought you got up in the morning so that you could get a cup of coffee. You know I don't drink coffee. (laughs) All right. Should we call it a wrap? Let's wrap it. That's a wrap. Because we also have to record the uh, um, The ad. ad. Are you the BIM jockey for your firm? Are you used to the grind of using broad search engines or searching manufacturer sites only to find they don't have BIM? Are you wrestling with outdated or poorly built objects? It's time to use RCAT.com. RCAT is a free library of over 7,500 BIM objects and systems, all available in multiple formats. Even better, each object is high-quality BIM based on actual manufactured products. You don't even have to register to access RCAT's BIM library. Just head over to RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com and start downloading the BIM objects you need. And thanks to RCAT for sponsoring this episode of ArcaSpeak. Thank you. I'm up for doing an after show. I got shit to talk about. Yeah. All right, you guys ready to settle in here? Yes. All right. Captain Knuckles. All right, so the other day I took repossession, (laughs) I guess you might say. Possession of a repossession? Yeah. uh, Of what? I took repossession of my project car. Oh, Oh, I, I guess saw it's a p- picture of that. I guess it's possession because it's not a repossession. It hasn't a been repossessed. Yes. <laughs> it is a. Uh... Oh, I hope you've paid it off by now. So <laughs> the funny thing about this is, uh, yeah, I've, this car has been a, a project car for longer than we've had this show. By, by a few years, actually. Hasn't it been going on for 10? Let's not focus on this, shall we? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> 11 years and, uh, uh, I don't know, eight days, something like that. Oh, it's down to days, too. 
Well, what's funny was it was almost exactly 11 years since I since I sent the car off. Okay, so I have a photo of sending the car off. July, no, sorry, March. Uh, what was it? I'd have to look it up, but anyway, uh, just a little over 11 years ago, end of March, and uh, I got a phone call the other day. Hey, you won't believe this. Car's ready, and so. Uh, <laughs> I had to go pick it up. I had to clear out a space in the garage to park it. But anyway, uh, so, Ready you know, I... it's finished. Y- y- well, or you know how we like to re- use the air quotes around here? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Drivable. Let's just c- call it that. Um, okay. But I thought it'd be fun to talk about cars for a little bit because I'm totally a, a car person. Um, and I don't... I know you guys. I know Cormac, you are. And I know, Neil, oh, you have yeah. a certain nostalgia for a certain automobile. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I thought it might be kind of fun to talk about that. Uh, so what? why don't we start with you, Neil? What is your... I'm, I'm going to pretend this is Ask Wait. Arca Speak, okay? And I'm going to pretend let to be me, a listener. Yeah, what's up? Let, let me put on my, my thinking cap. I know exactly what kind he likes. Yeah, I know. I know we do. Oh, <laughs> I think AMC it's come up. Before. Pacer. Oh, yeah. Nice. No. So... <laughs> Seriously. Vintage. <laughs> It's Neil's vintage. <laughs> Come on, man! You I don't, don't like the bubble. Remember what that? I I gotta remember oh, what that you know car it. even oh. looked like. What? AMC Pacer. It's I do the remember bubble. that. Wayne's World. Oh yes, I remember that car. You know, my mom almost bought one of those. Instead, she bought on purpose. A, well, no, no. She was looking to buy a, a small car or something. I, I don't remember. It was like mid seventies. Or late eight, I think late people 70s. were only given these cars. Nobody buyed the, bought them. Well, <laughs> I, I them. don't they were, remember they the were, details. They were but... only given them when their Pintos broke down. <laughs> <laughs> or, or a Gremlin, maybe. Or the Gremlin. Uh, the, it oh, it is the Pontiac There's... Aztec of, of olden days. Oh, oh gosh. <laughs> yeah, this is bad news. But, uh, yeah, so... So, anyway, so Neil, well, you I found you a start... Ranchero version of of an AMC Pacer online. Wow, this is awesome! A Ranchero version. See, you know, not only should you have been beaten for having just the Pacer in general, but then a Ranchero version. Oh, and then he's got side uh, side pipes on this one too. Right? There's several of these mm-hmm. highly customizable. According to, CB- according to CBS News, it is the eighth. Um, it's ranked eighth worst of- car. Of the fifteen ugliest cars, that makes sense. Really? Oh, only eight. Head. Well, it it apparently beat out the uh, Aztec and the Gremlin. <laughs> <laughs> you know, oh, not to... delivered. All right, all right. Before we go too far down the internet rabbit hole, turn off your internet and uh, let's let's talk about our cars. All right. So, so Neil, well, I don't own my car anymore. Okay, so but but you have a fair. you have a very You're going to uh, make me feel horrible here. You, <laughs> you you have a particular nostalgia for a particular automobile, which is well, I mean, I don't know if it's born of a love of that particular vehicle or just that when I was looking to buy a vehicle, uh, I had to buy an old vehicle, right? So something I could afford. And, uh, I mean, I found, I went to work one day, I used, used to work at this hardware store in town and went to work one day and there was this nice blue, I didn't probably didn't even know what kind of a car it was. Maybe I did. I don't remember, 
but uh, saw it out there and and ended up buying it, and it was a '66 uh, GT Mustang. So, and then you know, over the years that I had it, I had it for about twenty years, no, 15, 16, 17 years or something, I forget. And you know, over the years, I did everything to that car. I you know went forwards and backwards, and uh, I knew everything about it, and decoded all the. VIN numbers and I knew where it came from, everything about, you know, just knew every, I, even to this day, I can see one of these, uh, early model Mustangs and, you know, I can tell the difference between a 64 and a half, a 65 and a 66, just by looking for a few clues. And, uh, I don't know my 67s and 68s as well, but, uh, definitely the, those first two and a half model Man, years, they're sweet. I know pretty well. My dad had a 68 fastback. Yeah, it was pretty, pretty awesome. Oh, With nice. a 351 Windsor. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yep. Good old 351 Windsor. My, um, not a draft. 351 Cleveland. That was a different motor. Yeah. My drafting teacher, who was also the power mechanics teacher and all that other stuff in high school, he had the 67 fastback coupe and convertible. Whoa, nice. and, just depends and, on the day, huh? Well, so <laughs> he, used as, he used those as the project cars for the school to basically, you know, how uh, schools used to have like mm. auto shop and auto body and all that other stuff. Yep. Well, those were his cars that he would bring in and let us work on them. So it's kind of funny is <clears throat> he got away with basically restoring his cars for free because the school paid for nice. all the materials. Right. Um, using child labor. <laughs> oh, well, you know, you it, know, uh, it's for the good our, of the children. You know the family history of uh, um, on well, I'll say on my wife's side of the family on the Mustang, right, Neil? I told you that before. That my uh, wife's grandfather worked on the design team of the original Mustang. That's right. I do remember that. He was presented the first plaque, um, which had like the little Mustang logo on it from Lee Iacocca, who was the right. uh, head of that program. Wow. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, it's super I, cool. You know, it's funny as I can, like you can tell the difference between the variety of Mustangs, of early Mustangs, I can do that with uh, Camaros and, Cor <laughs> and, and Corvettes. That was the General Motors side of things. So when yeah. I was, when we lived Never up in Northern California, when I was a little kid, I was first grade, you know, six years old. And, and I knew every car on the road. Like oh, my, yeah. my dad would just say, what's that? And I would tell him and what's, and, and we didn't know how I knew, but I knew. And I mean, it, wow. it, it comes from him. Right. But, but it was one of those things where he would have a, a friend in the car and he would just start saying, Hey, Hey Evan, what's that? And then I would say what it was. And it was kind of a, a little inside <laughs> joke with the you know it was like how's that little kid know all that and uh did you ever right right i just did, did. you ever play the game of trying to determine what kind of car it was from the headlights <laughs> at night <laughs> yes well, I've, I've i, done I that can a lot. still <laughs> i can still do that yeah. you can't do that anymore not anymore it's a little harder same. but yeah it's a little harder but i can st i still but okay maybe i i can't <laughs> recognize all the cars but I, I still, when I look up in my rearview mirror at night, and I, I think in my head, hmm, 
What what model? What what car is that? What model? Nineteen fifty nine Ford LT yeah. wagon, uh, wagon queen family truckster. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Here, let's see if you can see this. See if that comes through. Check your messages. Yes, what you just sent me. Yep, there it is. All right, there's Neil's car. Everybody, that was everybody who's that was my car. We get to see what Neil's car looked like. Yeah, here, there's a shot from the. Let's see. Was right? that yours? Is this yours, or are you just pulling these off? That's mine. Oh, okay. no, that's mine. Nice. That was mine. Was. Look, it even well, has the so, Cal Poly Architecture sticker in the back window. So I've heard so, you say that that you would do just about like this is the car you want to find this exact car and own it. Again. I wish I could. Yeah. Now, if anybody ex- knows how to. I still know the VIN number. <laughs> how to track it down. If somebody it. knows how to track it down. I know the guy I sold it to, but I, I can't I can't find him. That was in pretty nice shape, Neil. It wasn't so in why, nice shape. Why'd you Don't get look rid of too it? closely though. Why, yeah. That's how it is uh, with old cars. How much how much bondo? No, no, no bondo. It was just Queen. the paint started chipping, you know, along in the very front. It's, it's old. You know, but um called a patina and uh um but no actually it was in very good shape i mean overall um it was it was a nice car um very low miles four speed so how many cars have you had neil you know i have not had a lot of cars to be honest i know that's why i'm asking um so let's see okay how many have i like personally oh well let's see i think so let's see. Well, okay. So I had I had my mom's seventy six Honda Civic. That was my first car. Seventy six. Seventy six Civic. That was the car. choice. Got either that or the Pacer, and she got the Honda. So thankfully, <laughs> that, that worked out better. Sweet. It's a good choice. Uh, let's see. So I had a seventy six Honda it? Civic. Yeah, but a lot of people had a Honda Civic. Not many people had a Pacer. So I I I, I kind of go back and forth on that. But seventy six. That's not a lot of seventy six Honda Civics running around out there. Maybe not back a lot in the of Pacers at all it. running around. Well, out that's there. true. Yeah, no Pacers. <laughs> Let's see. I went from that. Then I bought the Mustang. I owned that. While I owned that, I had a nineteen ninety Hyundai Excel, which I bought off of a friend of mine. So when I got back out of college and came back to the United States, I needed something to daily drive instead of my Mustang. And, uh, and so you uh, got it, you got a Hyundai in its heyday. Yeah. I, yeah, I did. Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you why, because, uh, a friend of mine, um, his soon to be wife, I think it was, but anyway, they, they needed to get out of the payment on the car and they only owed a few thousand dollars on it. So he's, he basically made me a deal. He says, here, you pay it off, you pay off the, the car and you can have it. So I was like, wow, uh, a three-year-old car. I bought it. It was a 1990. I bought it in 93. It was a three-year-old car. It had 24,000 miles on it. And basically I paid $3,000 for it or something like that. So, you know, for me, just out of college, $3,000, basically a brand new car, which, you know, I just needed a beater car to run back and forth to work in. It was a hell of a deal. And I drew a better beater. (laughs) Exactly. And I drove that thing till... I think it was um, about 100,000 miles, and I had a, a friend of mine is a mechanic, and I took it to him to get it smogged, and they stopped the smog test uh, or, or threw it into testing mode before it automatically reported me as a gross polluter, 
and yeah. uh, here in California, I mean, it was the car was actually running fine. It was just uh, the emissions were it needed probably a couple thousand dollars worth of work to to get it running again. I'm like, okay, you know this set nine year what's eight year old eight nine year old Hyundai Excel is just not worth the money. So I sold, I got, I traded it in and bought a brand new. 98 uh what was that that was a golf gti so let's see i have the, the honda the mustang the hyundai the golf gti so so far i'm up to four and it's just then i had the golf man. gti it's not a golf gti you either had the I golf was, or the gti yeah. come on okay i i had the gti okay good and it was a two-door gti and then uh yeah it wasn't the rabbit they didn't use that name then and then i bought my infinity g35 which you After still that, drive so today. I've had five. I've literally that the car I drive today. Yeah, four, fourteen. Actually, you know what? Today's as we record this is April ninth. Today is my car's birthday. I picked it up on <laughs> April ninth, fourteen years ago today. Wow! Happy birthday, car! Happy birthday, car! Yeah. So I've had five cars over five that time cars. in my life. Yeah, I've owned five cars. That's it. Evan, how long of a show do we have for yours? Yeah, I don't think you can go through all the cars you've owned. Yeah, we won't. Why don't you go, Cormac? <laughs> oh, mine. He's still counting. Well, you don't have to. You don't have to list through everything. You just just hit the highlight reel. Well, mine mine's quick. Uh, seventy seventy two Volkswagen Bug. Nice. Uh, I actually wrote them down so I could burn through them. Dude, anymore, I've got a spreadsheet. Just so you know. <laughs> holy shit what so so neil his list is long he needs a spreadsheet oh my well goodness. you gotta remember it all somehow. right 83 hondo accord hatchback um then when i got back to the states because the 83 accord was what i owned in germany and i couldn't bring it back with me so i had to sell it there 82 chevy cavalier four-door version yep it's kind of is was it the wagon version or the no the sedan? it was the four door okay the four door sedan um nice but I remember the hubcaps on those cars distinctly yeah that one didn't last very long so I got the, um I bought my dad's no surprise um, there eighty two Pontiac J two thousand mm. oh my gosh basically it's the same vehicle it was the Sunbird but it was the model year before they adopted the name Sunbird. The absolute best, and if I could have this car again, um, I'm probably going to get one sometime in my life. Um, <laughs> the if love you, of my life. If you can handle oh, come the on, repairs. The, the love of my life. Oh, is this, the, is this the car I think it is? What is it? The Triumph. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> the 1980 Triumph TR7. I nice. Loved that I remembered day. that. Yes. What a crappy car. Yeah. But what was I to love? Every, every, <laughs> everything. Hey, everything. Hey, so Cormac, I don't know if I told you this. Uh, my mom owned a Triumph TR4. TR4s were good. TR4 and uh, yours was three was better though. In the, I was in the passenger seat as a kid when we got T-boned and it got totaled. Yep. So Little that was the end of the TR4. TR4s were a good car, although I don't know if I'd want to be T-boned in a TR4. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't a pleasant experience. It's Fortunately, nobody was hurt. Car. I, uh, yes. I, I, I used to have a, a buddy who bought a TR6 
didn't know anything about vehicles, didn't know how to fix vehicles, probably couldn't even fill up the air in a tire. <laughs> um, and for some reason bought a TR6. And um, I used to work on his car all the time. And then drive it around. <clears throat> I do know that I can uh, beat a, um, you know, mid-90s mid uh, Camaro with it. Which because you did wasn't saying much because I did often. <laughs> but you don't um, have a stellar list of cars here, Cormac. Oh no no no! 1974 Austin Healey Sprite. Nice. Oh, not, okay. Not now even a bug eye Sprite. Not just even. the Sprite. Just the Sprite. Um, but, but that was more of a project car that never got to project. That that would have been one of your uh, um, eleven year eight month or eight day cars. <laughs> um. 93 Chevy Blazer, the S10 version. Yep. Oh, nice. Two-door? Sticking to the thing. GM side Four door. of things, aren't Four you? Four-door, okay. Four-door. I did love that. Um, a 97, not my choice, probably wouldn't have bought it, but my um, soon-to-be wife's father sold it to us, so I had to get a Ford Thunderbird GT. The wait, last model year of the big yeah. Thunderbird before they went to the retro version. Two door. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Two door. All two doors. That's a big two lead door, sled, man. Two door V eight. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, I remember a, that. It was a. It was a decent car. It's just I giant doors on those. Giant wingspan. Doors. And, and I'll tell you what. If don't you you got to go and you've got to be the one who parks way off in the distance you know and so oh, that yeah. you can open it up but of course <laughs> you park all the way out in bfe someone will park next to you <laughs> and somebody parks right next to you yeah. yeah yeah and you're like really you gotta prove the point yeah yeah uh 95 uh dodge caravan <laughs> grand caravan sorry grand caravan oh, oh grand. not only was it grand fake wood paneling purple Oh, nice. Purple. Did it have the wood paneling purple. stickers on the sides? No. No. Uh, it was, you it missed was, out it there. Was, it, was the, the, it was the round version, the rounder version. Uh, Let's see. Uh, Mazda 6. This is starting to make me sad. Mazda 626, an Isuzu Rodeo, a Mercedes E320 wagon, and then my oh. current stable. Oh, I remember of, that car. Yeah. And then my current the, stable. With the broken vehicles. window. Passenger window wouldn't roll up. Remember? Rear passenger window. <laughs> oh, was it? The rear? All right, whatever. Yes. I replaced the uh, motor on mine. I had the same car. <laughs> the rear window motor, that is. Yeah, yeah, you did have the same. I think you had the same year, too. Was it the 2000? 99. 99. Yep. Okay. Uh, you know what? Was it by 99? I can't remember. Close enough. It might have been 99. I think we had them about the same time, too. Yeah. And then my current stable of vehicles, the uh, soon-to-be recipient of two brand-new catalytic converters. <laughs> my... <laughs> but still going strong. But still going strong. Um, you, every, Practically anybody who comes and visits me over here has ridden in it one way or shape or form. Saturn Outlook. Yes, nice. Saturn, damn it. Saturn. Saturn, all of you. Outlook? What does that look like? I All the millennials listening are like, what? A, sat, a, a Saturn <laughs> Outlook is the Saturn? exact same thing as 
it's the exact same thing oh, as yeah. the GMC Acadia. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. It's just the affordable version that you can get fully loaded and still not pay the base price of an Acadia. Wow. Yeah, you're sticking with that just story, saying. too, aren't you? Just saying. Just saying. I, I have everything. It makes him feel better every loaded. time he says that. I know. You know I mean, I still that. drive a friggin' Saturn. Come on. Yeah. A Saturn. <laughs> Saturn. Kids kids listening to you this aren't even gonna know what a Saturn is. Nope. They're gonna say that planet. <laughs> the So there's rings around it that you guys have all written in. See, that's what I thought you were talking about when you were talking about the catalytic converters. No. I don't think I've ridden in the, uh, the Avalon. Yeah. Yeah, you have. Yeah, when in we, Atlanta. Went, we went to Atlanta. Oh, Atlanta. You oh, drove shit, that thing all the way I was to thinking Atlanta. of Washington. They still haven't so, fixed the yeah, shots. Atlanta, that's right. Oh yeah, that thing's a boat. It was like, man, you need new shocks in this. And how many years ago was that? <laughs> so it was like same four shocks. years ago. Four. It was longer than that. Same shocks. No. Oh my god. I think same it was shocks. four years ago. Well, same things that hold the place of shocks. Yeah. In their same position, tubular but structures. But they're not shocks anymore. They're shook. <laughs> they're shot. And then, last but not least, the current vehicle in our stable that. You have a stable. Just, yes. Is our 2016 Mazda 3. Nice. Riding in luxury. I've got, I've got a car in this decade. Yeah. Yeah, you're doing better than me. <laughs> oh, my God. 2015. So if you had to pick the best one, are you going with, you're going with the Triumph. That seemed to be the one you had the most good feelings about. <sighs> That's the one that I have good memories on. I have pushed that thing from sea to shiny sea. <laughs> With your bare hands. <laughs> With my bare hands. I have so, caught fire in that car. How many times did it car. break down? Oh, pfft. Can't even count. I think, I think the, question, the question would be easier for you to have asked how many days did it actually run consecutively? <laughs> oh, And this is a car you want another one this. of? Oh, absolutely. Oh, man. I, I will say this. Here's here's like this weird little dream I have right now. So the Toyota Avalon has got an absolute brilliant V6 engine in it, and it is a strong engine, and it still runs great even to this day. However, um, I don't really need it anymore. I mean, we've got the Outlook, we've got the Mazda, and we're fine with those vehicles, and the kids seem to never want them. Uh, understandable, because it doesn't have any shocks i would love to transplant that engine into a new tr7 so i will <laughs> have the power awesome. the power plant of a <clears throat> now they were understand they were originally built to have a um a rover v8 which yeah. is basically a buick 305 and they were originally built for that and has a drivetrain and everything else for a v8 but the 1980 version, the TR7, that's why it's called a TR7, not a TR8, was um, the company was on strike and they lost the, um, the, the I, I guess the they lost their vent. The, well, I mean, the, the vendor basically couldn't build any of the engines because they were on strike too. And so they never got any of their V8s. So the they pulled out this interesting um 
is probably the only way you can it's explain it. the nicest it. way to say it. It was called the Dolomite Incline 4. So if you guys can picture it, it's a V8 sliced right down the middle so that you have a four-cylinder, but it's what would normally be a straight four, but it's slanted mm. in the bay. Interesting. It's It was weird. It was absolutely weird, but the with the worst carburetors that you could possibly imagine because whoever thought that a oil piston single barrel side draft carburetor from Zenith Stromberg thank you Zenith Stromberg whoever you people are um so they'd had two of them so rather than yeah. putting a double barrel engine together you, you could never balance barrel, those i bet you could never they were never in sync and if they threw, if they were out of sync, then it threw time. Yep. And so you needed to under, you needed to draft travel with a timing gun. You need to travel with, you know, pretty much an entire tool toolkit. There's a lot of people um, listening who have no clue what you're talking about. But what's a toolkit? <laughs> what are carburetors? All right. So Cormac, I will say, check, check your messages. You got to see this TR40 uh, conversion. TR40 kit TR because yeah, because it's. Supposed to be a Ferrari F forty. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I saw. I saw those. those that thing things. looks like a toy. That's it's hilarious. Somewhat ridiculous. It's a, All right. Well, I'm not going to go offend, through everything. You have offended here, me. But so mine. So yours. You were up to what? Um, Neil, five. Five. five yeah. Did you count yours, Cormac? He's counting. Fifteen. Fifteen. So I'm fifteen. Holy moly. Well, forget the holy moly. I want to hear what you have to say about your number. Just throw the number out first. Me? And then hit highlights since you're not going to go through all of them. I just bought number 28. Oh. (laughs) And I'm not stopping anytime soon. Wow. Uh, let's just let's just cars. call them vehicles. They're not all cars. There there's a one oh. scooter, one moped, or one not a moped, a motorcycle, and uh, one trailer on there. But everything else is. Wait, I had a dirt no. bike at one point. Also mobile. So I've I've used movie. all of these for for like just normal normal stuff, normal driving around. Wow, so, you must now, buy now a lot of ve- crappy cars then. Now is the vehicle that I drove in the army that I had assigned to me for four years, is that no. considered mine? <laughs> no. That's my car. I own that. Oh, man. I could add that to my list. I paid for it. Yeah, uh, so I'm not going to go through all of them, but I'll hit the so, highlights. Yeah. Uh, so my I first my first hand-me-down car, as <laughs> like, like your Avalon is going to be maybe for, for one of your kids, was a 1982 Oldsmobile Cutlass Supreme Brome diesel. <laughs> Not the Brome. That thing diesel was like Lazy too. Boys on Wheels, okay? <laughs> oh, yeah. It had insult. enormous doors like your uh, Thunderbird as well. Giant two-door car. So I still Wait, see those around. What was the name of that again? I still see them driving around, but not the diesels. I mean, I would, sure? I would leave a stoplight in a cloud of smoke <laughs> for the people behind me. Well, that was that was your 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 spy kit, right? <laughs> yeah, smoke screen. Spy hunter was in. Yeah, so so this is the car that <laughs> somehow got thirty miles to the gallon, and it was enormous, right? Because it was a diesel. So ah. after that, I purchased my first car 
with my own money that I paid 500 bucks for, a 1978 Subaru wagon, which which is basically the Subaru Brat, but the wagon oh. style. Like the very first one. I, I don't know if you guys remember the Brat, but the Brat was so, a little car truck yeah. with rear-facing seats in the, ba- in the bed. Yes, in the bed. And they had like yeah. these grips that you held onto, like ski grips. Because <laughs> there were no seatbelts, right? <laughs> oh yeah, there's a picture of it. Oh, there's a dude sitting in one right there. But uh, but mine so was the wagon. Oh yeah, version. there's the handles. He's holding onto the handles. Yes. <laughs> Holy crap! Are you serious? Well, that's what they were called. Holy crap! Handles. Yeah. <laughs> well, I had the wagon version. How, how they had they, the bash guard on the front. And everything. It was awesome. I mean, how how did, how did they get away with doing that vehicle? <sighs> yeah, really. Because people didn't oh care about God. safety. AMT back then. made a freaking model of it. Hey, what's what's funny is that you know we would this do that. You know, pretty much just put a couple of lawn chairs in the back of you know your buddy's exactly. like, truck yeah. or something like right. that. Just anyway, see, see how long you could so stay is, seated. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, we've gone off jumps sitting in the back of trucks before. That's not a pretty sight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but this oh, this was a four wheel drive car. I mean, yeah. one of one of many all wheel drive. And uh, no, no, this no, was four wheel is... drive. This was not then... an all wheel drive car. This was you shifted it into four wheel drive, just like you did with your Toyota truck back then or whatever. Okay. And uh, right. I've been to the top of many mountains with that car. It was it was fun. I, that's the car I learned how to rebuild engines and had flames shooting Ooh. out of the carburetor and all kinds of cool stuff. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god here's one painted like the general lee <laughs> mine was mine was like oxidized brown it was terrible it was it was the worst thing ever uh but that was my first car that was the car i, I drove in high school it was uh you know not oh, you my poor thing you, not my did you go to prom in that one? yeah <laughs> no, no you didn't, didn't did you all right so so after yeah. that i graduated to uh bigger vehicles uh four-wheel drives mostly i got a, a 55 willys wagon which was Ooh, pretty nice. pretty awesome with a big Ford 302 V8. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, that thing was a piece. Um, oh, <laughs> did it have like paneling on the side or no? It it has the panels, but they're all metal. So like like, but it oh, had okay. discrete panels that were painted a different color on the side. Yeah. Oh. So um, I remember specifically about that car that that truck. Um, it had. It had the original leaf springs from 1955 on it, and so straight axles front and back. And the leaf springs were very small back in 1955, and they were they were 11 springs each. Okay, so 11 layers of steel. Yeah, and I'd go around a corner, and the car would stay leaning, whatever <laughs> the opposite direction was that I had turned, and I would have to jerk <laughs> it back to straighten it back out to like make it stand upright again. It was terrible. Wow. Yeah. So um, from there, I moved into Toyota territory with a couple of Land Cruisers. I had an FJ55 and an FJ40. And nice. uh, those were, I, I wish I would have kept those. Uh, the cool thing about the FJ55 was it was my grandfather's, and then it was my father's, and then it was mine. So there's a lot of history in that car. <clears throat> and that was a, a 74, and it had the power Ooh, rear window, cool. which was a super cool feature. Whoa. Yeah. I mean, there was a giant toggle switch on the dashboard, and you would push that thing down, and the rear window would go down automatically. That had funny dash or front, funny uh, front end on that car. It's really distinctive. Yeah. <laughs> it is very distinctive. Yeah. 
Oh, that was great. I, I loved those. It's those super cool. Fantastic. Yeah. It was orange and white. So if you, if you look it up, I mean, you got to look for the orange and white, the, the creamsicle, uh, the 50, 50. I'm seeing yeah. the, I'm seeing a red and uh cream color. Yep. They did that maybe, too. Well, they did green and it. white. They did red and white. My, uh, orange oh, and there white. it is. It's kind of a yeah. the creamsicle. The, uh, nice. the blue and white. Yep. Blue and white. Very primary oh, yeah, colors back then one. for sure. Oh yeah, there it is. It's kind of like a powder blue. All right, so I was commuting to Cal Poly at that time, and my Land Cruiser was getting eight miles per gallon. <laughs> so I traded nice. it straight across for for a 1985 Honda Civic, which is a total Ooh, a gas total trade down. But man, the gas mileage was sweet. Yeah. <laughs> Not a, oh god! Not winning, not winning any beauty pageants Boy, with that thing, but you no. went downhill. It was reliable. It was reliable, and it got good gas mileage. Yeah. Was it at the hatchback? No. Says the 1974 Toyota or Honda Civic owner. <laughs> Seventy six, and that okay, was the so... that was the hand me down, right? I didn't go buy that car. First car I ever bought with my own money was a '66 Mustang GT. So. There's that. So this Honda did break that down. You didn't know what you were buying. This, yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> this Honda did break down one time on the uh, on the on the five freeway in the middle of nowhere on the way to Tahoe in the middle of the night. Nice. That was fun. Water pump went out and uh, timing belt shredded and bent all the valves. It was pretty awesome. I got to hitchhike that night for the first time. Nice. Got got picked wow. up by a guy in a scary panel van. It was pretty sweet. <laughs> <laughs> and you live tell about it. Yeah. Didn't say free candy on the side. <laughs> What's it? A white van? <laughs> it was like different colors of primer. Yeah. All right. So uh, so after that, first new car ever, a '95 Subaru Impreza wagon. And you'll 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 let's see. This is wagon number three or four already. So definitely a wagon. A wagon person. Um, you'll uh-huh. as we go through here. Uh, then I I bought my first Datsun Roadster, which is how we started this whole after show off. Um, and that's the car that we're alluding to was uh, that I finally got back after eleven years. So I bought a '66 um, project car and ended up not going through with that project, uh, and I ended up getting rid of it. But um, the car that I just got back is a '69 Datsun Roadster. So it's a little two-seater convertible. Um, <clears throat> this is pre-Z car for Datsun, mm-hmm. like Datsun's first sports car. And uh, you don't yeah. see them very often, but they're pretty They're pretty awesome. I mean, there's oh, not too many sure. Japanese sports cars of that era. Honda had like the S800 and, um, you know, Mazda maybe had a, had a car. Toyota Mazda. didn't really have any sports cars back then, I don't think. Um, anyway, it's a super Triumph fun did. car. <laughs> <laughs> the mg uh, yeah. the mg you know kind of came or near the same time to, copied a lot of the wow. dots and roadster it's not not nearly as reliable that's a, that's a nice looking car i like uh, that car copied my yeah. yeah go ahead i'm just <laughs> you're holding it <laughs> you're full of i mean i'm i'm sorry when when was that your Datsun built Mine was a 69, but they came out in 64, 65. 
Oh, so like when the when the MGB was uh, introduced in 1963, who was copying who? <laughs> All right, Are anyway, you a British car owner besides a Triumph? Uh, yeah, I, I rebuilt several MGBs. Nice. Love them. Never owned one of yeah. my own, but rebuilt three. Is that stereo vertical or is that just like a... Yeah, yeah, it's vertical. Mm. Oh, it is vertical. I've replaced wow. all that. So this car is a is a total mod. Uh, Rest of mod. I put a 96, oh. 96 uh, two-liter Nissan engine in it, uh, five-speed tranny. No Vs. You should have put a V6 it, or something. It's fuel-injected. Oh, it, this is double the horsepower of what it came with. Like, Believe me, <laughs> this car is so tiny. <laughs> <laughs> it goes. Oh it goes. It's pretty fun. Um, I, I'm, I'm wondering the size of that one versus like the size of my Austin Healey Sprite. Yeah. Because it's pretty sprites close. Are tiny. I think like a bug eye Sprite is smaller. But... Yeah. The, the Sprite and the bug eye Sprite are the same size. So the, you know, the MG midgets. Yeah. It, that's the, it's the exact same body as the Austin Healey Sprite. Okay. It's the same, same, same car, just, you know, different badging. Yeah, this is pretty small. Like, you can easily touch the other side without leaning over. Yeah. You know, two-seater. All right. Two-seater. That, that's the high... That's the that's the one you're ending on of the 28? Yeah, there was a lot of other stuff in there. I, I had a I had a Porsche wow. 911 at one point, the BMW oh. 2002. Oh, those are cool. My uh, son's buddy, um, he, he and his father... I've built one so when he's legal to actually like drive his own car mm -hmm. he actually has a uh, 2002 waiting for him nice all souped up too that's a nice car it's exactly what you want to give a uh, yeah teenager. yeah right. Right. Oh. yeah geez yeah they're they're uh that's a good car i mean there's good visibility it's a lot of glass you know <laughs> it's a lot of glass it's a lot of glass but yeah, all these yes. cars, you know, like you end up accumulating a lot of tools, fixing these things. And I mean, that's kind of the fun, fun of it too, is tearing you into know, them. And funny as doing Neil kind of, Neil started off talking about his Mustang in, you know, opining, opining about, uh, I had to buy something that I could afford and all this other stuff. And you did not talk about how much it cost you to keep that thing running. <laughs> Nothing. And that's always what usually is nothing no you really I'd, you really spent nothing to keep it running when i bought it it had sixty thousand miles on it wow it was 20 years old at that point i bought it in 86 that My car dream. i mean you know i i mean i had to upkeep <clears throat> it um i spent money on it sure but most of the time it was um you know just not really fixing things. Nothing mechanically was really wrong with it. Um, I did have some trouble with the carburetor towards the end. It had the original auto light carburetor. And I, I did replace that with like a Holly 600 or something at one point, just cause it just worked. And so I just pulled the carburetor off, put the new one on and connected it up. And I don't know, I'm probably forgetting a lot of the tuning and tune ups, you know, plugs and 
distributor caps and points and all that stuff. But everybody spent money on those though. Yeah. But I mean, you know, the car was pretty rock solid. I didn't have any problems with it. It wasn't like an old beater broken down thing. Because normal, um, normal owners of, I mean, you have an old car, you usually spend money for it. So, Mm -hmm. you know, you, you may be able to buy it cheap, but you don't own it cheap. (laughs) Yeah, true. I think the car that gave me the most heartburn and expense was that Mercedes E320 wagon. Hmm. It it just had tons of miles on it, and nothing is cheap to fix on that car. Nothing. No. Yeah. I, uh, new transmission on it. Um, when I went out in, so, you know, none of these cars their emissions are insane. And so when you go out and you replace one catalytic converter, uh-huh. you're basically replacing the entire side. Yep. And that's 1600 bucks. Yep. I had to do that. You know, and then don't, don't worry because not too far after that, because you have now one very, you know, respirated side and one kind of congested side <laughs> that you'll be, Changing that other $1,600 part, you know, right. pretty soon. Uh, so that's when I said, hmm, I'll trade it in. Oh, wait, what should I trade it in on? Ah, uh, yes, a Saturn. Because <laughs> nothing could go wrong on that thing. It was a good deal. <laughs> I'll buy the first model year of a vehicle that um, prior to that General Motors had never sold. Because, you know, they work out all of the bugs before they sell it to you. Or they sell it to you and you work out all the bugs for them. Like a new transmission. That's so funny. Pending to catalytic converters. Man. Thankfully, I can do all this work myself. Because damned if I'm not going to. <laughs> so I've had the most Subarus. Four Subarus three Toyotas. Funny enough, I've only had two. I've, I've had a handful of GMs, but none of them are, you know, a Saturn. I've had one, Pontiac, just the first, Chevy. just the Oldsmobile. Only. I've, had, I've had two Chevys, two Mazdas, and then everything else have been kind of like one-offs. All right. Well, that was it. <laughs> I, I thought it'd be fun to talk about that. I mean, I'm obviously like I if if I wasn't doing architecture, I would definitely consider a career in in like resto modding yeah. old cars. I think that'd be so fun. Like just all fabrication, like the scale of it, the 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 customizableness of cars is just something that is. Oh, yeah. It's always just been something I've I've loved about about that. It, it's it's pretty pretty fun fun hobby so i, I oh would my, i would uh, love to hear what our listeners have have done but we'll see if they chime in on this discussion mark lepage right. yeah mark let's, i know mark's got a nice talk car about your camaro <laughs> cuz i love your car yeah it's a nice car oh hell yeah i mean honestly so all right so before we roll out of here if you were able to buy one classic car. Mm, easy. 
that you have not owned yep. before. Oh, it's toss up. Ha. I'll let you Neil. I'll let you ha. guys pick. <laughs> can Whoa, I go Jared. can I go with a different model of the same car? <laughs> a different year? Neil can't just get, no? just can't get away. I want a GT three fifty. Uh, G3, 66 50, 50. GT350. You don't want a GT500? I don't think they made those in 66. Well, no, has to be a 66. Why it's going to be a 66, man? Because that's just my favorite car. Actually, uh, maybe they did make a 566. Maybe. I, I'm, not, uh, I'm not totally up on that uh, that history there. Yeah, here's the problem. Later, I but. don't. Uh, there's too many to like to dream or drool about. See, you laughed you at know? me, but yeah, here you go. The one car that I had always dreamed about, I don't think that I would ever really want to get it because it would look pretty, but I don't know how much I would actually drive it. And it's a a '60 Corvette because mm. it's. I just love the '60 Corvette, but. Honestly, if I was going to get any one car, it would be a triple black 1969 Corvette 427 convertible. <laughs> Just one bad mother. <laughs> it is. I remember the first time I saw one of those, I was like, oh, I really love this Corvette or I really love that Corvette. And then I saw that. I'm like, forget all those Corvettes. Look at that thing. So what you got there, Evan? So you want to hear the toss-up? What? Which wagon would you like? Yeah, no, it's actually not. <laughs> They're both Roadster style. Uh, okay, so first one is 1964 Shelby Cobra 289. Mm. And I say 289 but, because it's, yeah, it's just yeah, a yeah. much more drivable car than the 427. Yeah. yeah. I just think it would be... It's It's kind of like... In the spirit of what I've got now, it's it's totally enough power, size to weight ratio. You know, it's just it would be amazing. Now, I've always loved that that body style. That it's just an amazing looking car. Um, and I I even love like the hardtop version of that car. You know, the I think they raced those in Le Mans. I mean, it was just it's just a cool thing. But the toss up for me really is. A Porsche 550 Spider. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know the James Dean. Uh, <clears throat> just it, there's just something so iconic about the 550 Spider that I've always loved. Uh, you know, rear engine, really light, really small, really nimble. There's just nothing to it, and that's really kind of what I'm modeling my resto mod after, as far as like equipping the car with nothing. <laughs> like, like it's yeah. it's how minimal can you make it? I'm getting rid of all of the the extra pieces and parts and switches and just cleaning it out and smoothing it and, and just really cleaning it up and making it as minimal as I can. And, and, and it, it really is the art of subtraction because, you know, the old, the more involved cars got over the years because of emissions and bumpers and reflectors and all this stuff, they just, the more fussy they got and the more it's just, extraneous stuff and so this is kind of an exercise in subtraction and it's been kind of fun but i kind of I always go back to that 550 and and look at that and just think like it's really the essence of a sports car um, and I, I kind of feel the same way about the the old shelby cobra so 
Yeah. Yeah. There you go. That's my picks. Yeah. <laughs> could could never just pick Shelby one. Shelby Customs. Who, what? Yeah, I mean. Oh, the GT350 was a Shelby he, modification. Yeah. He knew what he was yeah. doing, didn't he? He was a hack. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, let, let's be honest with you. I'd buy another 80 Triumph. Come on. <laughs> oh, just a glutton for punishment. Yeah. I'll see you, see you when you're pushing that down the highway. <laughs> <laughs> we'll wave. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, so last, last thing, how, what's the fastest you've <sighs> ever driven? <laughs> That's this easy. Mm. What am I supposed to go first? Sure. Oh, absolutely. Uh, not that fast. I've maybe hit a, just about a hundred, maybe a little bit more, not much. This is like this is like uh, wearing the uh, all nighters on your sleeve. You know, this is not something to brag about. <laughs> oh, I, wait! How fast have I gone, or how fast have I driven? Driven, yeah. Driven. No, we've all driven. been in okay. The, yeah, in control behind the in, wheel. Yeah, yes, probably about just just over a hundred, not much more. All right, Cormac. In Germany, yeah. In Germany. 172 miles. Whoa! What the? In the United States, 168 miles an hour. In what vehicle? In the States, a um, Corvette Grand Sport. Wow. In um, Not Germany, a car you owned. No. Okay. No. There's a very long story of that one, which involves Next, a, teenage, a teenage baseball player you know pro baseball player who was drunk and asked me to move his car and i decided to move it <laughs> very fast very quickly <laughs> very quickly uh, yeah uh, and in germany it was a very super tuned um uh 1985 um Mustang, uh, five liter or five Oh GT, but it was aftermarket tuned by a German tuner. Oh, wow. That's Not my car either. Nuts. Yeah. It, you beat me. Jeez. I've gone about 150 in a, in a Corvette as well that I was driving at Willow Springs racetrack. <sighs> So a pretty, holy crap, pretty fun. And it, and it's, to me, it's like, it's like reading that book skunk works where mm. the SR 71 got smoother, the faster you went. Like yeah. that's how this Corvette was. <laughs> 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 I mean, you turn it on, you feel like it's going to shake itself to death and the faster yeah. you go, the better it gets. Yeah. Yeah. Had real sticky rubber on the tires. It was, it was really fun. I think this. If my memory serves me correctly, it was a 1996 uh, Corvette Grand Sport. Yeah, I don't know the year that was, mine was. It was bright yellow. It was a look at me yellow. The, <laughs> this one was the one that it was blue with the uh, the little um, the white stripe, the big white stripe down the middle, and then the two like little um, blood stripes over the. Um, driver's side front tire. Yeah. I might have, I mean, <laughs> it, uh, it was so stupid. 
me driving it like where I drove it that fast, knowing that where I was driving it was like right over it's across this bridge, very long bridge, and there's like this little hump in the bridge, and right on the other side of the hump it usually is where the state troopers park and wait to like pick off people. And uh I drove up to that and then somebody was actually like following behind me thinking that they were going to catch up with me and then right as I was getting close to the hump I kind of like hard brake slowed down to like 65-70 dude flew past me they got busted oh (laughs) winning (laughs) it was a yeah sucks to be you sorts of dumb is what that was yeah kids don't do this at home no no not at all but come on that was such a bad ride cars cars gotta love them go fast look at that first try guys it's like we getting good at this what we're doing I will say that the best vehicle I've ever driven, type in H-E-M-T-T. Oh, wait, is this wait, some wait, army say vehicle? Say that again. H-E-M-T-T. H-E-M-T-T. Hemet? Holy Hem- fuck. Heavy expandable mobile tactical truck. <laughs> Holy shit. You should have shit. mentioned that on the show. <laughs> That's awesome. Got an amazing approach angle. (laughs) Oh, my God. If you have ever driven a vehicle where you sit in front of the wheels, (laughs) it is is a completely different way of driving. I have not. That sounds fun. Um, (laughs) Join the army. See the world. you You have to drive past, like, your turn. Right. And then turn. Oh my and it God. is such a, a weird such paradigm. a weird thing. That is, it is. awesome. It, you you more or less have to you know, here's the thing. You have to relearn how to drive because it's slightly different. But you also have to remember when you get out of that vehicle and get into a regular you, you vehicle. You gotta switch your mindset. <laughs> you have to switch your mind back to oh, turn nice. before you. <laughs> but it is, oh my God. I mean, it's an eight wheel drive, so it's an eight by eight. Wow. I will say this um, when you're not pulling a missile launcher on the back, you know, because not everybody's going to pull a missile launcher every day. <laughs> Sometimes you park your missiles. Um, so when you do have that, uh, those things can haul. I mean, they, they get pretty fast. And guess what? When you're driving down a small German road and you're going in one direction and a little German car is coming in the opposite direction, guess who wins <laughs> in the space fight for space guess, uh, race? Guess who moves in the game of chicken? <laughs> yeah. I, it was, oh my God. I can, I can just see... The cars that we've um, done damage to. All right. Later. Later, guys. All right. Bye-bye.
you all have a grant of the days.